Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 129, recorded on August 4th, 2021. The Cloud Pod ditches are M1 small instances. Welcome, guys. We have quorum today, finally. <laughs> Peter, Ryan, <laughs> yeah. and Jonathan, all at the same time. I don't know. Like some of you guys are strangers to me. I've been here all this time, and you guys have all been gone. <laughs> I really need to schedule more vacation in the summer, clearly, because yeah. all of you guys are taking advantage of uh, the summer breaks, and I'm not. But uh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we've had a great, great group of uh, guest hosts, followed by Matt Cohn and Sarah Tamborella from Foghorn, jumped in for Peter a couple times, and then we just ignored the fact that Jonathan was missing for weeks. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no one can replace uh, me, clearly. <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Ryan, you know, he was down at Disney, you know, doing the mouse thing. And so we just, we just heard the screams in the background. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I'm sure that was great. Turns out it's still a small world. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it is still a very small world. <laughs> well, we have a bunch of news this week. And up first is, of course, our friend earnings season. And earnings are here once again with, first up, Google, or AK Alphabet, even though I still can't get used to that whole mess. Uh, Google apparently crushed the Wall Street expectations as it saw dramatic advertising growth amid the pandemic bounce back. And YouTube apparently led the revenue with $7 billion, up from 83% last year, nearing Netflix in quality of revenue. So that's quite a bit. Their total revenue was $61.88 billion versus $56.16 billion the year before. And $4.63 billion of that came from Google Cloud. Oops. Uh, up three point uh, up from three point zero one billion a year ago, uh, the cloud business had an operating loss of five hundred ninety one million, which is a huge improvement over a year ago when it was a one point four three billion dollar loss. I wish I could have a one point four three billion dollar loss, and the bank wouldn't just repossess me. <laughs> <laughs> They're losing their own money, not the bank's money. That's the difference. Yeah, very true. If only they put the price of YouTube TV up just a little bit more, they might not have lost quite so much this year. <laughs> it's actually cheaper to go back to um, like if you're okay with a flexible without the flexible contracts it's cheaper to go back to Dish anymore for all the yeah, same I mean, stations and you get 4K because now they want to charge more for 4K as well so I'm kind of feeling a bit a bit cheated by Google yeah we're all like let's cut the cord get rid of Comcast and all these other <laughs> you know cable providers now I'm paying $15 a month to everybody under the sun yep exactly uh, yeah I'm paying the two same $200 a month I used to spend to uh but now it's by choice at least (laughs) that's true and if i'm unhappy with your content i can just cancel you versus my whole package so or you know in the bold days i just ignored those channels i just didn't go there (laughs) i don't care what you have to say (laughs) all right well let's move on to microsoft uh microsoft had earnings of a two dollars and 17 cents per share uh although wall street predicted that only be a dollar 92 so that means that uh, wall street sucks and microsoft beat their their estimates which is always good uh this is on revenue of 46.15 billion dollars uh revenue was up 21 percent year over year uh, which is pretty impressive and microsoft's intelligent cloud segment which includes the azure public cloud windows server sql server and github produced 17.38 billion in revenue up 30 percent year over year uh, and azure revenue grew about 51 percent for the quarter which is pretty good wow so the revenue doubled in Azure, huh? That's, a, that's what they said. That's crazy. And then uh, the final final quarter of Amazon uh, under Jeff Bezos, uh, they only had earnings of fifteen point one two per share uh, on one hundred thirteen point eight zero eight billion in revenue. Um, although Wall Street was unhappy with this because they predicted one point one hundred fifteen point two billion. So you know, of course, their stock got tanked after this. Uh, overall revenue growth was twenty seven percent year over year. 
uh, to the 113 billion I just mentioned, uh, which is down from the 41% year-over-year growth from the year prior, which was you know COVID-related maybe, and everyone buying everything they needed from the yeah. internet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So you know the CFO actually said in the earnings call that. Uh, we're starting to see some of those corrections from post-COVID that, you know, you're just not going to see those kind of growth numbers that you saw before uh, during the COVID year. Uh, AWS itself, though, grew its revenue 37% in the second quarter. Uh, last quarter, if you remember, it was only 32%. And a few quarters ago, it was 29%. So they're actually doing pretty well on the Amazon Web Services side. Uh, AWS revenue was $14.8 billion of the total billion, uh, revenue for AWS. I wonder if any other company that's over $100 billion a year in revenue grew 27% year over year last year. Not that I know of. Yeah. <laughs> I think BioNTech are doing pretty well this year. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, funny, I saw that Bezos is no longer the richest person uh, this morning uh, because you know their stock fell after the earnings call. And so, unfortunately, the, uh, the owner of uh, you know, all the very fancy fashion brands, Louis Vuitton and a bunch of others, is now the number one. Uh, billionaire oh, on the planet, uh, you know, until at least Amazon stock recovers, and then Andy Bath Jesse will be right back on top. So, just a matter of time. All right, well, let's move on to main show topics. Uh, it's Magic Quadrant season, uh, the 11th Magic Quadrant for Infrastructure and Platform Service, or SIPS, as they uh, call it, uh, has been published. And can any of you guys guess uh, who maybe won it for 11th time in a row? Hmm. Uh, probably Ghana. Who would it be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ah, uh, it's too bad that wasn't lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> we, need, we need a sound, actually, for the Magic Quadrant. We have a sound for the earnings call. We should have a sound for Magic Quadrant. We do. We should, we should yeah. have one for the Magic Quadrant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Some kind of like twinkling, twinkling noise thing. Just warn me next time so I can take my earbuds out. That was so loud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, of course, uh, Amazon won it again for the 11th time in a row. Uh, last year, the Magic Quadrant was expanded beyond just infrastructure as a service to include platforms as a service, as well as managed databases, serverless computing, and developer tools. Uh, and so AWS is right up there on the top right, uh, which is quite interesting. Uh, a little bit interesting. We'll talk about Azure in a little bit, but uh, Amazon was actually in the top right position, but Azure was actually uh, just a little bit below them uh, on the chart on the uh, you know from the right access, which I believe is the uh, completeness of vision access, uh, but it was lacking on the ability to execute compared to AWS. But uh, you know, if AWS, Azure can figure out how to execute, which is Microsoft, so no hope there. Uh, you know, they could definitely improve quite a bit uh, and potentially pass AWS in the magic quadrant if they could just get their execution under control. That's because they're still using IE eleven. Yeah, that's exactly oh my right. God. <laughs> Uh, you know, there of course there's strength and weaknesses, and we're not going to go through all of them because I'm sure Magic Quadrant would reach out to us and say, "Don't do that," because <laughs> we want you to pay it for the report, which is lots of money. Uh, but you know, one of the ones that caught my eye on this one was in the caution section. Uh, they mentioned challenging renewals, uh, and they report that dozens of Gartner clients uh, across multiple geographies have said that you know to renew their EDPs, they've been you know pushed to have an annual spend increase of 20 percent uh, to get those new EDPs renewed, uh, which I had kind of heard in the past a little bit. Uh, you know, from you know sales reps and things like that. If you want to renew your EDP, you need to have some type of growth to it. You need to have you know because Amazon doesn't want to just keep renewing you at the same level. Uh, but you know that's apparently rubbing some people the wrong way on who are customers of Gartner, uh, which is interesting enough that it showed up on this report, which is one of the few that I've seen complain about this issue. Uh, I don't see a lot of it on Twitter. I don't see a lot of it on Amazon, Reddit, or any other places. AWS people complain about AWS. Uh, so very interesting to see it show up in the magic quadrant. Yeah, you know, I remember the twenty percent renewal growth push like from the beginning of EDPs, but I don't think it mattered before because everybody had so many workloads to move that the no, the 20% growth was was a no-brainer. Now you end up, if you're already all in, unless your company's growing by 20%, that's, 
that's a big ask. Yeah. And it also depends on how well you model out your spend the first year. I mean, perhaps people were lowballing what they were going to spend and then easily meeting your EDP and Amazon wanted you to commit to more for the next year. But now well, we spend a lot of time modeling out exactly how much we think we're going to spend. And I think we, we do a pretty good job anymore. So I think 20% would be quite an ask. If anything, I'd see it going down year over year as we take advantage of new technology, serverless, and better optimizations. Yeah, I mean, if you're adopting cloud native and following Amazon's ethos that everything should start costing you less, you know, you should see your dollars starting to reduce. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, it's a little bit counterproductive to what they're trying to sell you as a value prop. Yeah, it's a weird tension between, you know, op- optimize everything and uh, commit to more. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot to do with how you're going to compensate the sales team. You know, you're going you're gonna to compensate them on just keeping the lights on or are they supposed to be growing accounts? And if you, but I mean, I can't imagine uh, Amazon not offering the EDP level pricing to customers that are that large just because they're still not growing. That doesn't make yeah. any sense from an Amazon standpoint. I mean, they might push for it, but I don't think they, I don't think, I don't know they'd hold you to the fire on it. Like that's, because they're not going to let you just have all of a sudden have a, you know, 12 or 13% increase in cost <laughs> because you couldn't get an EDP that made sense. It just doesn't, yeah. you know, that's not in their best interest, it's not our best interest as a customer. Um, yeah. you know, the other one we, we talk about here on the show quite a bit, which is about you know MVPs and how brand new Amazon services are MVPs. Uh, and so one of the other cautions that Gardner mentioned was bare bones offerings. Uh, and Amazon's new services are often not ready for meaningful enterprise consumption, which you know, we've talked about all the time here on the show. Uh, so that one's not a surprise to me, but nice to see Gardner also agreeing with us on that. I mean, you could just do it as you're in GCP doing, they, they have these long beta phases where they either charge or they don't charge as much. They don't charge or they, they don't charge as much for it before they say it's yes, now we GA. I mean, right. I, I like get my hands on it more and all my accounts and not have to, not have to request access to, you know, specific services and specific accounts all the time. It's nice to have early access. If you're smart, you just realize you just don't start using them for three to six months. Exactly. Or two years. <laughs> Or in the case of people still on EC2 Classic, I mean, it's been, what, like, what uh, nine years now? Yeah. <laughs> BPC safe to use, guys. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Definitely a risk, but I, to me, releasing things early when they're bare bones versus not releasing them at all, I'd, if it were my choice, I'd rather have the opportunity to get on them early and just choose not to than have the provider not offer those offerings at all until they're more built out. Well, it's like the whole mindset of, of Agile, really, isn't it? D- yeah. Deliver early and often. Start, get, start getting feedback as soon as you can. Yep. So that, that's like a strength to me, not a weakness. Yeah. Great. I think it's all about your perspective of how you, how you look at it. All right. Well, next up is Internet Explorer 11. Uh, Amazon has decided to end support for it. Uh, Jeff Barr blogs this week about, on as of July 31st, AWS will no longer support IE 11 for new management console features or guarantee that new web pages fu- will function properly. Um, however, if it was there before July 31st, they will continue to support that until July 31st, 2022. Uh, later this year, it'll start annoying you with a pop-up saying that you should be moving uh, to Chrome, Edge, or Firefox and off of IE 11 uh, which I don't know who uses Edge, but you know Firefox, Chrome, great choices. <laughs> and so then by July thirty first, twenty twenty two, they will no longer support IE eleven for anything on their console. Uh, and so definitely get moving to something more modern at this time. I, I don't know who anybody's used IE in forever. I just yeah, I, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what does IE stand for? <laughs> Internet Explorer. Yeah, Some, that's what it feels like. It's everyone who doesn't change the defaults right on their new computer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Some some finance app. 
a lot of computers now require, you know, because of the EU stuff, if the computers are going to be sold either in the EU market or in the US, actually, when it first puts up, it has to ask you which browser you'd like. And it'll actually help facilitate you downloading the browser you'd like to use versus IE. So it's been a Do you even get IE for a Mac anymore? No, they discontinued that years ago. Awesome. But they do. They do have Edge for Mac. If you want to use Edge, um, you can get that. But you know, the thing about Edge and Firefox and Chrome, they're all using the same basic Gecko engine or the hood. Um, right. There's not a lot of difference between them. It's really just user interface and you know, bookmark management. <laughs> and how much spyware they add. Yeah. Yeah. Pick your preferred spyware. Yeah. Exactly. Which is good for us, right? Yeah. It's always good for us. <laughs> Well, on a topic that uh, none of our hosts care about, uh, AWS has announced the general availability of IoT SiteWise Edge, which is a new feature of AWS IoT SiteWise that provides software that runs on-premises at industrial sites and makes it easy to collect, process, and monitor equipment data locally before sending your data to AWS cloud destinations. Uh, AWS SiteWise Edge can be installed on local hardware such as third-party industrial gateways and computers or on AWS Outpost and AWS Snow Family Compute devices. Uh, all this leverages IoT Greengrass, an edge runtime that helps build, deploy, and manage your applications. And as part of the GA, they have added easy setup with your Edge Gateway installer, support for IoT Greengrass V2, and integration with LDAP or AD. What's interesting is why they would offer this as a service to run on your own hardware outside of AWS, not not on an outpost. Is it... Um, sure, it's latency to the device, right? Is it, is it latency, or is it is it just uh, testing outside the cloud, or is it um, the fact that people may need resilience or, or availability of of this, of these these monitors and reports, even if the connectivity to Amazon goes down, and we're supposed to be talking about um, industrial applications, it could be, it could be a safety concern if you know EC EC two is down or if US West two is down or something else. So maybe it's a, sort mm-hmm. of a, a risk mitigation strategy. Yeah, might maybe. just be straight logistics too. Like you might not have the ability to to install a rack in you know the factory floor or wherever you know you're running this. So. Well, and a lot of times, if you think about you know, manufacturing and PLC computers and PLC, you know, they, they've tried to start segmenting PLC hardware from uh, networks because it's an attack vector, right? And it's one of the big ways they attacked uh, the Iran nuclear facilities uh, and the, you know, was by attacking the PLC computer itself. So there's been a big push in security to actually separate the PLCs from the you know, main network of your plant. And so it's potential that you need to have this in an edge so you can talk to the PLCs but still then have connectivity back to the cloud for analytics or for data ingestion of some sort. And that's probably why you're looking at a gateway appliance uh, versus a snow or an outpost product. But you're right. You're right. Nobody's gonna, we, we know nothing about it and none of us are going to ever use it. So, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, did, I did manufacturing early in my career it was an interesting space I don't know that I would go back to manufacturing anytime soon but uh, it was you know there's interesting challenges in how you do manufacturing and, and PLC computing and all that it's interesting but not my area nowadays well uh, this week AWS is taking a page out of the killed by Google playbook uh, although I, I don't know if I really agree with that because AWS has trying to kill this for years. Uh, AWS has finally announced the retirement of EC2 Classic Networking. And of course, EC2 Classic was one of the original services launched in 2006 based on one instance type, the N1 Small uh, Security Groups, and the US East 1 region. The model for EC2 Classic was flat with public IP addresses assigned at launch. I think we talked about this a few weeks ago that, you know, this is back in the day when everything had a security group and that's how you did everything was through security groups. Yeah. 
Uh, early on, they added, of course, Elastic IPs, auto scaling, load balancing, and CloudWatch, really the foundations of what became Amazon AWS uh, to help build highly scalable applications. However, many customers want to connect their easy to boxes to on premise networks, exercise more control over their IP addresses, and construct sophisticated network topologies. Fools, fools, all of them. <laughs> uh, leading to VPCs in 2009 and eventually VPC for everyone in 2013. Uh, as Jeff Barr says, they're giving EC2 Classic a gold watch and sending it out to pasture. So there you go. Uh, EC2 Classic, which has been you know, basically dead for any customer who uh, you know joined the service since 2013. You, know, you didn't get EC2 Classic as an option. So if you have this, it's because you've been an Amazon customer for a very, very long time. Uh, and your AWS account rep will be reaching out to you to how to get moved off of the EC2 Classic, which is really just as simple as doing some scripts and you know, rebooting your box. I think I'm going to spin up an M1 small in my original account just to give a call to see what they say so I know what my customers are going to be in for. There you go. Why would anyone still be running on EC2 Classic is, is my first question. Because they, they get stuck, right? They, get, they have, they have, they have uh, uh, some workload running on an old version of Linux that there is no, there's no VPC version of that operating system available, uh, easy to spin up. And so then they got to upgrade the operating system, but then they've got this old app on it that doesn't support new operating systems and has old Perl libraries that they can't upgrade. It, and it's just like, just leave it. Just leave it, don't touch it. And then eventually that head comes back to bite you. Mm-hmm. And then it just gets harder and harder and harder, not easier. I bet it's some, somebody is depending on some static public IP address that they can't possibly change because they just don't want to tell their customer. <laughs> That's part of it, yeah. Well, and that, that's one of the nice things I saw on this actually was they give you an IP address migration capability. Uh, so you can actually move your address uh, to the VPC through a CLI command. Um, another one that was a big blocker was uh, classic load balancers that had you know, a DNS name that you've somehow locked into. Um, those weren't able to be moved to VPC and that you can do that now through a support case, which is pretty nice too. Yeah, I love how much how much ease they're really thinking about you know, for the customers for migration. Um, like lots of tools, lots of different options for making this easy. Like they knew this was going to be a hard lift for, for lots of, lots of their customers and lots of their like older established customers. So they put a lot of work into making this as easy as possible, which is good. I'd love to know how many, how many instances are still running. I mean, uh, I almost feel like it's, it's probably so few that they could just have named people in the press release. Hey Bob, you know who you are. (laughs) Just shut that that damn thing down. (laughs) Go look, at, go look at what customer case studies they're presenting at the first reInvent. Be like, yeah, I bet you're a classic EPC, VPC user. <laughs> I bet there's more than you think. There probably is. I remember hearing stories about banks who still have like a tremendously large amount of passbook accounts that they just they can't close. And so they have to leave all the systems up and running. Like pretty much forever. <laughs> Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod foghorn the promise of cloud delivered 
All right. Well, things that are new and flashy and shiny. <laughs> the CDK uh, pipelines are now generally available to you. Uh, you know, pipelines for Amazon services apparently are a trend this month, as we talked about. Lots of different pipeline capabilities. Uh, and AWS has released the CDK pipelines, a construct, a construct library for CDK that makes it easy to set up simple or complex continuous delivery pipelines with AWS Code Pipeline. The CDK pipelines development teams can define and share pipelines as code patterns for deploying their applications, uh, which is pretty nice. Yeah, finally a use case where I'm I'm looking at CDK as like a potential solution, just because this is sort of. You know, it's nice. You know, you, you, CDK is a little bit of an anti-pattern to you know infrastructure's code and codified configurations, because um, you know you don't want to have to like debug basically, you know, a variable expansion in your deployments. But for something like a, a a code pipeline, you want you know the ease of that, and it's not directly in the runtime. So I kind of like this model of maybe some things using CDK while others using declarative infrastructure. Definitions. Yeah, next week we'll talk about the development pipeline for CDK pipeline pipelines. <laughs> oh my god! Trying to win the lightning round. Yeah. Maybe think it was a DevOps uh, CLI command that just you know gives you a CLI a DevOps ML team that just does all your DevOps for you. Oh, I just yeah. I'd pay good money for that. Yeah, I just I see the fr- I see the uh, abuse of these tools and like people looking at their Terraform code and can't figure out what's going on, why their environment isn't working. And then they go into the pipeline and like somebody has written in conditionals into the actual pipeline based on what environment it is or other crazy features that actually define the environment instead of the, the infrastructure's code code configuration mm-hmm. files. They had a story that was use CDK and then they realized it was hard. So they didn't they just set, statically set all the variables what they wanted in the in the construct and then just built that work. That's perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Works. It works for now. Just don't change yeah. anything. Yeah. And then when I quit, don't try to you're never gonna be able to figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Code reviews. Code reviews are important. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think when we first talked about the G4 AD instance classes, we did mention that they are all big servers. Uh, and so previously, you could only get the AD class, the G4 ADs in a one GPU, 16 vCPU, and 64 gig of memory configuration. Uh, and of course, bigger than that as well, multiple GPUs, etc. Uh, but now, today, you can also get a, f- a four CPU with 16 gigs of memory option and an eight uh, vCPU with 32 gigs of memory option, uh, which are these, make these instances ideal for game streaming and virtual workstation use cases that create visual effects and animations and run design and engineering applications. And with the new size, customers can save up to 25% by not being over-provisioned with the only option they had previously, <laughs> these new fantastic options. are stunned with these G4 ADs. I see it. <laughs> see it in all your faces. Every time it's just like it's another acronym and then yeah. all I want to know is yeah. Yeah, how much does it cost to run my workload and if it's cheaper, yeah. I'm all in. Because yeah. I don't care. We were talking while you guys were all gone when Matt was here. We were talking about uh, the complexities of the naming convention that you know we used to make fun of uh, Azure's naming convention for instances and now AWS is just getting just as complicated yes. uh, in their naming convention unfortunately. So it's just an uh, unfortunate set of circumstances there. I think it's less about the naming convention and just more about that when somebody else is completely managing the hardware and pretty much the operating system, not managing the operating system, but offering the operating system that runs on it, I don't care anymore. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's Intel. I don't care if it's AMD. I don't care if it's ARM. Is my workload run on it? And what's the what's the total cost based on the total compute and RAM I need? And give me the lowest one and I'm in. 
Mm. That sounds it's, spoken like someone who uses spot fleets and Kubernetes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, we do actually yeah. a lot. Well, Nitro standardizes a lot of that stuff, but still, if you use a mix of instance types in an app stack, it can be a real chore to figure out. Well, you know, where, where are my disks going to be in the file system exactly? Is it XVDA or is it SDA or is it some some other thing off? Is it mounted as an NVMe drive, but actually it's an EBS volume that looks like that because we're on Nitro? Like so. I mean, yeah, I like that they're moving towards a d- direction of standardization. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would be nice if they had a uh, just like a cheat sheet for these things. You know, G means graphics, A means AMD, D means disk optimized, N means network optimized. Like, where's the page that just says, you know, this is this is like the decoder ring for for, for the instance types? Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, they should have one because there is one. All those letters and numbers mean something. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, new website. Someone make it. Here we go. <laughs> Should we just be a feature on ec2instance.info? Just have the decoder yeah. ring there. So we'll do it. a joke website that you, that completely makes up completely other things for the <laughs> numbers and letters involved. That could be a lot of fun. That could be fun. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on to GCP. Uh, again, Magic Quadrant. Uh, Google was also in the Magic Quadrant. Uh, then they squeaked into the leader quadrant. Uh, you know, they're in the position which I would call the "we pay Gertner way too much money to not be included in the leader quadrant" spot. Uh, <laughs> you know, they are definitely there, but they are—you know—they're just over the line on both completeness of vision and execution of vision. Uh, you know, when some of the things that were interesting in this particular one, uh, in the caution section for this one again. Uh, post-sale satisfaction, uh, particularly around customer support, uh, which I just happened to kind of go across the Reddit uh, GCP uh, subforums, and I was telling some people talk about their support experiences, which sounded pretty awful. <laughs> uh, and so that's uh, you know that's definitely something to keep in mind if you're looking at going to the GCP route. Uh, and then of course you know they mentioned some of the other things around financial losses for GCP, which can't stay can't last forever. And then they did mention that incentives are there when you want to get onto the cloud, but then once you're there. Those incentives sort of disappear pretty quickly, uh, which is kind of interesting as well. But uh, yeah, they did highlight their revenue growth and their growing enterprise mindshare, uh, as well as you know rapid innovation in the Kubernetes space. So you know Google's got the right directional area, but again, they're kind of just squeaking into that leader's quadrant. Yeah, I mean you've heard the horror stories about you know post sales uh, interaction with with Google nightmare being a nightmare for years. Like so, that's nothing really new. That you know, it's just sort of continuing. It's clear where they're they're investing in in the sales and and building the business, trying to get those losses under control. Running the actual business is you know, step two. Yeah, I mean they are getting the costs in line as we're talking about earnings, right? One point two billion to only five hundred million dollar loss. <laughs> so they are you know on the right direction at least. So maybe they'll become profitable next year or two. Yeah, if you do the math there, I mean they're probably about a billion dollars in revenue away, which should be super easy to make. Uh, from break even, so look, it's looking really strong. These numbers actually—I was concerned before. These numbers make me uh, a lot more confident in if I was going to bet on Google Cloud that it's going to be around. Yeah, yeah, them able to shrink losses—that's that's huge. So, well, uh, in areas where losses aren't mounting, <laughs> they have opened a new region in Melbourne, uh, which is now officially open. This is the second region in Australia, joining the 26 existing regions globally connected via Google's high-performance networking helping customers better serve their users and customers throughout the globe. With this new region, customers in Australia and New Zealand will benefit from low latency and high performance of their cloud-based workloads and data, uh, which is good. And they also mentioned in this article, you know, more subsea cables coming in the Australia-New Zealand area, which makes sense. So, And there's always really good coffee. Oh, is there? That's not something I knew was known. Yeah. For. 
I was like a coffee from being a Seattleite originally. Uh, coffee and I, we like to talk to each other <laughs> <laughs> every morning. <laughs> so I love a cup of coffee. All right. Well, next up from Google is uh, Cloud Build Private Pools, uh, which is a secure CI/CD for your private network. Uh, and when they say private network here, they don't mean your network. They mean Google's network inside your VPC. <laughs> uh, so you can now take advantage of serverless build environments within your own private network at the new Cloud Build Private Pool feature. Cloud Build is, of course, a modernized CI/CD solution that is fully managed, secure, pay-as-you-go worker uh, with pay-as-you-go workers with no infrastructure to manage. Uh, unlike Cloud Build, this actually works uh, and is pretty good. So. Uh, this is available to you now across 15 regions uh, and allows you to build from private repos like GitHub Enterprise or public ones uh, with hundreds of concurrent build pool uh, builds per pool and up to 15 different machine types to make your builds go super fast. So is this is this to say that it would not connect to a you know an on-prem sort of service or a dependency? Well, you can put it in your VPC, and then because it's in your VPC, you can leverage the VPN routing. And go back to your private data center. It just doesn't run in your private data center, which is sort of gotcha. how it is worded when you start with this. But uh, you know, it, it does connect to your private GitHub repo in your environment uh, over a VPN connection or whatever other method you've given it. Uh, and of course, then the build job itself runs inside your VPC, which is a security compliance issue for some people. Yeah, I think that's the huge piece: is that it's not a private, it's not a public service. So now you've got those uh, nodes spinning up in your private network, makes things so much easier, especially if you're got you know, sensitive IP. I mean, I can't think of very many builds that I've been involved with where there wasn't sort of, you know, private data or private dependencies being accessed. So I'm sure this is a, a long awaited feature for those using cloud build. So are we now paying for our own compute for these builds or were we paying for it before, but it was just shared tenancy or I don't understand. You were paying for it before, but it was shared okay. tenancy in the public, public service. So, I mean, there's a bunch of things that Google put in place to, you know, make sure that your code didn't, you know, mix in the runtime and, you know, secure compute <laughs> initiatives and stuff like that are all designed around this kind of fixes. Um, but yeah, this, so this just means that it's running in your VPC versus in their public. That's interesting. Basically before it was in EC2 classic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With a firewall around it. Well, yeah. well, I mean, about that though, I, I would assume that, that Google are probably either in their own dog food to some extent and build a lot of their applications or services to be um, containerized. And so perhaps we'll see more and more of this from all the providers uh, allowing you to run those otherwise shared tenancy services in your own environments on your own infrastructure. Uh, I think Google is actually a little late to that. Actually, you've been able to do that within Code Pipeline for a long time, and then even even GitHub Actions now they 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 offer an enterprise offering where you can run the compute in your own on your own infrastructure. So it's it's definitely happening, definitely coming. I mean, do you think it'll spread to other services? I mean, database services, any any other kind of managed service. I mean, many of those already have this capability. So I think the databases, Cloud SQL stuff, is already in your private VPC um, if you configure it that way. And a lot of times, like since it's you know the ephemeral nature of CI/CD you know workloads, like you want that to spin up and down to be very elastic and on demand. So it's not really something unless you have a true security or compliance isolation sort of requirement. You don't really want to run that on dedicated hardware. Well, if you have a compliance use case for Anthos, I have a feature for you. Uh, this is the new Anthos config management uh, capability. They're interested in Google config controller, hosted service provision, and orchestrate Google Cloud resources. 
And this service offers an API endpoint that can provision, actuate, and orchestrate Google Cloud resources the same way it manages Kubernetes resources. Uh, you don't have to install or manage the component or be an expert in Kubernetes or GitOps as Google Cloud will handle all of that for you. In addition to, uh, for, to being able to be used for hybrid and multi-cloud Anthos configurations, it's also available for GKE as a standalone service. And GKE customers can take advantage of the config and policy automation in Google Cloud at a low incremental per cluster price. Uh, development teams, of course, need stable and secure environments to provision apps quickly and deploy them easily. And platform teams often scramble to provision and configure the necessary infrastructure components, apps, and cloud services the same way. And that's only because the developers don't tell the platform team until it's too late. <laughs> that's the only reason why that happens. Uh, so, but platform administrators have been handcrafting and partially automating configurations, new infrastructure code languages, and tools for years. But yet, configurations drift out of sync with production all the time. And that's because it's hard to describe what is wanted, create what is needed, and repair it when it's broken. So, the declarative Kubernetes resource model, or KRM, reduces the toil with a consistent way to define and update your resources. Uh, using the Anthos Configuration Manager makes it easy by adding pre-built, opinionated config, and policy automation, such as creating a secure landing zone or leveraging a GKA cluster from a blueprint. Config sync continuously reconciles the state of your registered clustered and resources, meaning that the changes will not be unvested or unvetted. Combined with Policy Controller, it's easy to create and enforce fully programmable policies across all of your connected clusters and manage all of that through Get Up. Uh, but somehow magically done for you by Google. Well, it's 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 instead of defining your infrastructure as like a configuration, you're defining the intent, and so they, you know, they're very big in um, that in the Kubernetes model, where it's like you you don't really know that a, it's a container running somewhere in Kubernetes. You're just defining the service, and it translates to a service in a pod. Mm-hmm through the declarative, you know, configuration. And so this is sort of expanding on that to be, you know, all Google Cloud resources, which is sort of a, it's a, I think this is bigger than, than truly getting credit for just because I, I feel like this might be, this is just as big as like defining infrastructure as code. This is the next model, which is confirmation. Cool. Well, this is also one of the big problems we've talked about with the source code all the time is, you know, sometimes if you're using, uh, you know, Cube config tools, and you go make a change to your cluster. Like, how does that change then get put back into the code? And if Google's going to handle automatically synchronizing those changes back to the source code, so that you have that you know you know immutable source of truth for the cluster, that's great. Um, so, I mean, that, again, if it's doing some of that stuff, I think that's helpful because there are there are some changes you do in an outage situation or in, in a thing that you don't want to lose, but you also forget about very easily. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, so this is exactly what this is saying. If you went and made a change in the Google Console, it would be reverted. By by this, you know, config management, Anthos config management solution. So, like that's sort of the the trick there, which is uh, if you're going, it's it's going. You declare your intent through YAML, like everything, and then it's you know anything that's changed outside of that intent is going to get stomped on. And so it's it's right. an auto remediation of any of those manual changes. What tool are you replacing that you're it's, currently using today that this is better than? It's not really a replacement tool. What it is is a if if Terraform was consistently running, you know, if you're constantly running an apply on Terraform, this would be akin to that. So you're not really replacing any of the existing tools. You're still defining your configuration. You're you're just defining an intent rather than specific configuration. So I want. But if I spun up my infrastructure with Terraform, mm-hmm. I'm not, and and I turned this feature on. This isn't going to magically fix my Terraform code. No. no. So you, but you would instead of defining your infrastructure in Terraform, you'd be defining it as a configuration in YAML for this Anthos config management right. service. Yeah. So this is a replacement for Terraform. 
which I mean, it is in the sense of that it, you're defining your configuration, but it's the selling point is more about that auto remediation than, than the actual. Yeah, I mean, I get the selling point, and, and I mean, I think CloudFormation has a similar feature, a drift control feature. It doesn't fix the drift though. Like that's the config. It just warns for CloudFormation. Yeah. It's a, yeah for CloudFormation and Terraform. It, they both sort of just tell you what the changes will be. Uh, and then you can go and do a thing that will make it. This is taking the next step and actually fixing it. Right, but I mean, this is a that, that if you're going to standardize on this tool and you're going to standardize on infrastructure as code, then you're no longer going to use Terraform. I I suspect that you will use Terraform for all the the stuff that this doesn't cover, and then all the things that you need to tie environments together. Because this, this is still very application-driven configuration management. So how do you get the network you know, that does the VPC peering between two different things? You know, that kind of thing. I suspect oh, I thought it was covering be. everything. Because, I mean, they were talking about other services outside of Kubernetes. It could. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's fully featured, but, I mean, it's... How do you deploy the dev, in, you know, when you're doing a dev deployment of versus a prod deployment of, of some of those... You know, interconnecting sort of resources. That's the challenge. Well, if they're not pitching that now, my prediction for this year is that <laughs> this tool is uh, aimed at replacing Terraform as their default configuration management uh, IAC tool. I would agree with that. That's a lot of cost. I mean, they've invested a ton in Terraform to do all the things they do with Terraform now. That'd be a big pivot. Yeah. Maybe they got tired of all the backward, um, you know, breaking changes. <laughs> Yeah. We'll <laughs> they, see. Were too, they were tired of waiting for Terraform 1.02, huh? Well, Maybe they is, just needed a stopgap, and they were willing to invest a ton of throwaway money to make sure that customers had a good IAC tool until their tool was ready. Well, again, maybe maybe Google says, look, we want to give you a choice, and there's multiple solutions. You can use Terraform, which will still support as a first-class citizen, but we also have this new shiny thing. Go use this <laughs> if you want something better. Yeah, I, mean, I, like, I like choice. Well, the other option may, may be not so much that they're trying to replace Terraform, but it also kind of provides an abstraction away from the implementation. So you can still define an intent and they could still provide the services that support your application, but you don't necessarily need to know what that's going to look like ahead of time anymore. You just, you just tell it what it needs to do, not, not how to do it. Fair enough. For listeners of the cloud pod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft active directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, jump cloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. Enabling JumpCloud's zero-trust solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try JumpCloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. All right, let's move on to Azure. Uh, again, Azure in the magic quadrant. I don't know if you guys knew that. <laughs> uh, they are solid number two, as we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, directly below AWS, uh, only failing to execute. Uh, you know, there are a couple of interesting things here uh, that were mentioned as cautions, resiliency, which we've talked about ad nauseum here at the podcast, uh, following the regular CTO blog post about their resiliency strategy and how they're trying to get that to be improved, as well as just the commercial complexities of their licensing and contracting um, as two big 
areas of focus uh, or cautions for the Azure cloud. Uh, but overall, you know, they they said the broad appeal of Microsoft is always a win, as well as the strong enterprise relationships they already have today. Heavy emphasis on the existing relationships. I think, you know, yeah. I think <laughs> they've always done a really good job capitalizing on that. And making sure they give you lots of credits. You know, they have the marketing dollars to throw at you to make you pivot to Azure. Uh, it's always a big deal. Yeah, the, the leverage over licensing terms, though, is... Not always great. A uh, little, uh, little unfair. Yeah. The one, the one caution that stuck out to me the most was novel innovations as a caution. Uh, and they say, Azure's novel innovation in the market for infrastructure as a service and pa- platforms as a service relative to its competitors over the past year were substantially less appealing. Uh, which, you know, if we just look at how many Azure stories we've talked about this year alone, uh, definitely <laughs> lacking uh, in the announcements area and really innovation perspective. So I completely agree with Gardner on that particular one. Yeah, and I think that that might be due to the fact that all of these competitors, you don't have to be novel. You need to catch up. Yeah, but I mean, I would say Google's getting market share because they are able to leapfrog everyone else on Kubernetes and on big data ML. So, I mean, like, what's what's Azure's killer feature that makes me go uh, Azure other than I already have a relationship and I already have draconian licensing terms. I'll just make it easy for myself and go with the new one. Like, that's not selling, as a technologist, it's not a selling point to me. Uh, but like, what's their big play that I'm getting out of it? Well, oh, it's it's big play premium, <laughs> ultra premium, <laughs> Jonathan. Of course. <laughs> All right. Well, if you are using VMware still, uh, you are probably very familiar with VMware Site Recovery Manager, uh, which is a DR capability for VMware that allows you to orchestrate your DR recovery, uh, which is really nice uh, to be able to say, hey, you know, I want things like my AD controller to start up before my app server or my database server to start up before my other servers. Uh, and SRM has been around for years now and is a very popular solution uh, overall for your BCP and DR. Uh, and now you can use SRM with Azure VMware in a few different scenarios. First, from on-premise VMware to Azure VMware solution for DR, which is actually really nice. Uh, so you can basically set up uh, Azure as your SRM uh, DR location and it'll handle all the orchestration of VMware on Azure Uh, to make that happen, as well as a primary Azure VMware solution on Azure to a secondary Azure VMware solution, again, on Azure, uh, allowing you to DR simply with VMware uh, all the way across the stack. Uh, SRM, of course, is licensed and supported directly from VMware, but you can use your existing license key through the Azure portal. Uh, So you would have, I think you have to have a VMware EA agreement to do this, if I recall, Uh, but it is a great feature if you have it and something uh, I recommend highly for teams struggling with the DR orchestration piece. Do you think the the Azure cloud is actually running on VMware, or do you think they've provided some kind of compatibility between VMware as as deployed on prem and whatever the implementation is for Azure? No, I I believe the Azure cloud is running on Hyper V, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, you know I think the you know they do have a partnership with VMware. They do offer just like Amazon does, just like Google does, where they provide bare metal to Azure uh, to VMware, and then VMware can package it up into their services and provide that to you as a service on top of bare metal. Mm. Yes, no, I I assume the rest of the VMware of the Azure world is all Hyper V <laughs> uh, or AKS at this point. Hyper V, wow, I haven't I haven't actually used Hyper V. In quite a long time. <laughs> I did once, and I don't like talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, uh, the blob storage of Azure is now getting immutable storage capability with versioning. Uh, Azure blob storage is now uh, is immutable storage provides the capability to store data in a write once, read many, 
uh, capability or worm capability. And once data is written, it becomes non-erasable and non-modifiable, and you can set a retention period so that files can be deleted until after that period expires. Uh, this is in preview for you in France and Canadian regions. So if you're in the U.S. wanting worm drives, you're out of luck. Move to France. <laughs> yeah, write once, read many, pay forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to be the person who sells these. I want to yeah. be the sales guy who gets to sell this. <laughs> Oh, there was EMC sales reps back in the day who made a fortune on worm drives. You know, people buying them, not knowing what they were getting. And then, you know, I filled it up. And then now my policy says I can't delete the data. And you're like, yep, you need more sand storage now. But, 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 uh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's weird that it would be uh, France, though, especially because there are such strict rules in, in the EU around, uh, around uh, personal data. And if, if a person says, hey, I need you to purge my data, you have to purge their data. And so, if I, you know, if customer data is now sitting on worm drives, then what do you do? I mean, there are exceptions for the data that typically falls underneath PII and data protection. Like, you know, banks are typically immune from that because of the need to maintain financial records, etc. Um, so, again, I think your use case is what drives if you can use Worm or not. Um, you know, but I assume that the reason why France and Canadian regions were the first two is because that's where a very large customer was yelling, "Hey, we need this <laughs> capability!" Um, you know, and assume it will come out to the rest of the regions. It's generally it was generally available later in the year. Well, if you're tired of paying a fortune for your backups of SQL Server or any other Azure backups, uh, you can now use archive storage uh, with the new archive tier for VM and SQL Servers. Alongside moving your long-term retention points to the low-cost archive tier, you can also perform restores from archive tier using a simplified integrated approach. And with this change, your backup storage now has two tiers, Vault Standard and Vault Archive. By moving your backup data from Vault Standard to Vault Archive, Azure Backup converts your forever incremental data into full backups. And this may result in increasing your overall gigabytes of usage, but the cost will be reduced from the lower tier. And I haven't done the math on this, but I bet it's not that much cheaper because <laughs> of that going from incremental to fulls. I don't like that at all. I don't want my, my cloud provider to to start opening my backup files and moving data around and merging things like that. That's that's completely off limits. That, that should not be a thing. I bet it doesn't work with encryption keys, <laughs> so you can solve this problem. <laughs> right. That actually reminds me of a, a yeah. notice I got from Google a couple of days ago. Apparently, I've got a, a file in Google Drive which they're going to apply a security update to. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what that file is yet. I haven't clicked on it. It looks like a zip file, so I don't know what's in the file. Maybe I've got something like the iCar virus in there or something. I don't know. But the, the fact that the cloud storage provider is now going to open up my personal document, make a change, and then save a new version of it kind of pisses me off. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if they're so opening the file. They're just changing the metadata on the file. And uh, like, I've been getting a lot of those as well for particularly um, files that were in my organization that I shared, right? So the CloudPod has a, you know, has a Google Cloud organization. We have Google Drive. We use it to share files between our vendors and us, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, there are times where I've wanted to share those files, but you know, sometimes people do that a little bit too uh, broadly, and they'll say, like, hey, the entire domain of Microsoft.com can access this file, uh, and they only wanted your sales rep to have access to it, for example. That can cause all kinds of problems. <laughs> and so that, that's a lot of the change notification I've been getting recently is about them changing uh, the organizational sharing settings, basically, for Google Drive. But, uh, you know, Google Drive, it seems like they're getting a lot of like, major overhauls recently, so I'm not exactly sure what's going on over there in that world, but... Uh, yeah, you know, they're definitely doing something. Yeah. Anyway, I guess. Sorry for the tangent. But I guess getting back to the story, though, maybe maybe uh, Microsoft should realize that the uh, incremental and full backup strategy for cloud-hosted SQL Server just maybe isn't the right tool for the job, and they need to come up with a better way. I Man, I don't. I, I don't really understand why I need to convert them from incremental to fulls. As long as I have, you know, the the control chain of all the backups and all the incrementals, I should be able to just keep that going. I shouldn't necessarily need to convert them. So I'm not really sure why they made that choice for, you know, for Azure backup, but they did. 
Well, the next one up is the Microsoft Cloud for Healthcare is expanding its Azure Healthcare APIs. And so previously we talked about the Azure API for FUR, uh, you know, which was Azure was definitely the leader in the space coming out with the FUR API first, uh, although Amazon and Google have rapidly caught up with them. And so it's time, of course, to rename the product and add new capabilities to confuse the market. And so, uh, first of all, the Azure API for FUR is now known as the Azure Healthcare APIs, which are purpose-built for the healthcare industry and protected health information data. The Azure Healthcare APIs enable customers to ingest, manage, and persist data in the Microsoft Cloud for healthcare. And the Azure Healthcare API now supports the ability to handle structured data, unstructured data, imaging data from in DICOM formats, and biometric data from devices, all ingest via IoT into the FUR capability of the API. Uh, all this technology allows you to answer simple questions like, give me all the medications prescribed and all the CT scan documents that have and their associated radiology reports for any patient older than 45 that had a diagnosis of osteocaroma over the last two years, which then leads you to a lawsuit probably somewhere uh, as you find out that your drug was causing cancer, <laughs> which is never good. Uh, there's also new connectors for Azure Healthcare APIs supporting Azure Data Science VMs and Azure Synapse, all available in the latest version of the Azure Healthcare API. And someone said they're not novel. In the healthcare space, they are. <laughs> it's pretty cool stuff. Real value add to people trying to get things done. Yeah, I mean, and, and especially considering all the different vendors who are involved in a hospital, just being able to have a standard data format with FUR is huge. And then being able to now power that with the cloud. There are a lot of really interesting use cases that get unlocked with this solution. I just think it's funny that there's been like millions of searches for FUR, F-U-R-R, as people are trying <laughs> to search for documentation on how to use this thing. So they're like, oh, screw it. We'll just change the name. <laughs> <laughs> I hope if you're in the healthcare space that you know it's F-H-I-R versus the other FUR. But uh, you never know. Yeah, it might know. be the whole, maybe the whole driver for it is we can't find the FUR docs. Just like I can't find the chef samples either. You know, I always get food. <laughs> <laughs> And distracted, right? Now I'm watching a cookie show. I've just wasted three hours. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Down the rabbit hole. Yeah. And that's how I didn't it's deliver on fault. that server you needed, because I was cooking, watching the Great, <laughs> the great British Bake Off. So not my fault. All right. Well, Oracle, of course, is here uh, because they're also in the magic quadrant, but not in the leader quadrant. Uh, they were in the visionary quadrant behind Alibaba, which is ouch. That's so rough. Uh, apparently, Oracle has many strengths, including market responsiveness. Uh, apparently, they're reacting to what the market wants from them. Uh, they have critical infrastructure for running Oracle, as well as a very distributed cloud, uh, which apparently is a benefit of them. But they have some cautions, uh, cautions for them, which includes a nascent adoption, which is code for no one's buying it. Uh, polarizing <laughs> presence, because Oracle's the evil, evil, evil people, and a very heavy lift and shift focus, because Oracle doesn't want cloud native, because cloud native doesn't include the word Oracle database in it, uh, which makes sense. Uh, so, Gardner... Carter pegged them pretty well on this one, I think. Uh, although they gave, they gave them more credit for distributed cloud than I think they should have, because again, those are just garages somewhere that have a couple racks of OCI infrastructure running inside them. So they're high on vision. They're in the visionary quadrant, which is incredible to me. I think they would be in the exact opposite quadrant. They're a huge company, tons of ability to execute if they have the right vision. And so far to date, they haven't had the right vision, which is why they're behind. And uh, yeah, I think I think that although I, I agree with you that the strengths and cautions are are pretty good, I think they should be in the opposite. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I said visionary, but they're actually in the the niche players space. Alibaba's oh. in visionaries. Gotcha. Read my note wrong. Makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. So they're in the niche player space, and then of course behind them is IBM and Tencent Cloud. So I mean, Oracle's beating IBM, <laughs> hey, losing to, ever, the losing old to days. everybody else. Yeah, that, that would be a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. 
I've been watching the IBM Cloud ads during some of the um, Olympics things I've recorded and, and then watched again. And every time they come on, I'm, I, I kind of point to the TV screen. I'm like, that is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> so there's not Oracle commercials, but Unbreakable Cloud that you could you know, scream at. Oh, my TV. God. Yeah, the Unbreakable. The autonomous uh, stuff as well, yeah. Autonom- autonomous, <laughs> amazing cloud, yes, of the Oracle. Sure. All right, well, let's move on to Lightning Round. Speaking of Lightning Round topics. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. AWS Service Catalog announces improvements to the Getting Started Library. Anything that makes people want to use Service Catalog more is not a a win in my book. Yeah, this is just code for no one was using it, so they had to pour the gas on to the the Getting Started pages. Okay. You have to deploy the library with Service Catalog, though. Man, that would be a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand why you guys hate Service Catalog so much. It's so great. Because we have to build the service catalog underneath it all. <laughs> like that's yeah. the problem. But if you're a consumer of the service catalog, you probably like it just fine. But as a yeah. builder of it, you're like, oh, I hate everything. Uh, about this. Yeah, of course we'll we'll make it purple now. Yeah, let me just do a whole new function. Yeah, <laughs> have this whole catalog of things that you can deploy, and then have all these constraints to say, oh, but he's not allowed to deploy that, and you're not allowed to deploy this, and it all costs too much. So let's take all the privileges away again. It's, it's just not proton for the win. <laughs> Amazon Code Guru Profiler announces new automated onboarding process for AWS Lambda functions. I'm, I'm disappointed they didn't call this the Guru onboarding process because it would have fit the name better. Oh no, so this is kind of a, a Rochambeau. Okay, uh, <laughs> this is kind of a, a cost cutting for for Code Guru, right? Because you can only li- you know your Lambda sizes are already limited. So this is one way to make Code Guru Profiler a little cheaper if you only do Lambda. Aren't you glad you waited for that? I was, I was going to say something positive for a change. I was going to say serverless. That's just completely effortless anymore. Nice. It was on CloudWatch had support for trimmed mean statistics. I don't know CloudWatch was a mean girl. It's interesting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and Amazon Elastic Block Store now supports idempotent volume creation. There's only one idempotent joke, and it's funny no matter how many times you tell it. (laughs) 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 Uh, Is that all we got? uh, I'm going to follow that. (laughs) You could follow that. (laughs) AWS Control Tower announces improvements to guardrail naming and descriptions. You mean people didn't like rules that said disallow? That we're going to automatically run in their accounts and you decided to name the detect instead? Well, yeah. About time. Yeah, improvements is the Amazon way of saying corrections. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, yeah, really. We fixed the faux pas. Yeah. Amazon Workspaces adds support for USB YubiKey U2F authentication on PCOIP Windows Workspaces. So I can uh, send my YubiKey code on Slack more often? Great. Appreciate that. <laughs> And agents can now set their next status while still on an active contact in Amazon so, Connect. So now I can say I quit in my next status yeah. <laughs> after this call that I was just on. That was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I quit, Perfect. but I'll finish up this call first. Yeah. <laughs> I need to turn to my pee bottle. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh. oh my goodness. Google introduces improved maintenance policies for cloud memory store. That's because they, they had to fix that cloud Alzheimer's problem they had. You know, it kept losing all the data, so you had to maintain it. Oh, I already forgot this 
this service even existed. Memory store? Mm-hmm. Alzheimer's. Yeah. It I took me a second. I'm here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> I totally didn't get it. <laughs> took me a little bit. I was like, what? Oh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Amazon Redshift simplifies the use of JDBC ODBC with authentication profile. Nothing about that sentence was simple. No. <laughs> JDBC, ODBC, and authentication yeah. profiles? Yeah, yeah. nothing that's simple, no matter what they do. No siree. And AWS Config has support for AWS backup services. There's there's a poor engineer that's the story behind this. Like, wait, why did you turn off the backup service? Yeah, <laughs> seriously, right? <laughs> right. Do you remember when you did it? Yeah, yeah. Now we know. A little mm-hmm. alert pops into Slack. Uh, someone just turned off the backup. Someone's written that RCI. I know I've written that RCI <laughs> very similar to that before to a customer. <laughs> yeah, backups haven't run since. Yeah. <laughs> Not good. Bad news is we're down. Good news, we have a backup. Bad news, <laughs> it's from 2016. Yeah. Have you done much of the system since then? I'm not really sure. Like, I, <laughs> have you have you recorded every change you made to the database since we looked through the last backup? Yeah, you can just replay the logs. It'll be fine. It'll yeah, be fine. It'll be fine. All good. And Amazon EKS now supports Multis. I hope EKS recovers soon. Sounds really bad. Right? Yeah. Oh. That's the end of our round, gentlemen. The winner has to go to the one that went over my head. <laughs> Nice. On cloud memory store. <laughs> I was gonna say which one. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never getting a point again. You never, never again. Uh, right. this ending year score is gonna be nine. And that means, I mean, that Ryan has a chance because he's at seven right now. So yeah. he's yeah. only two off. Uh, so you yeah. know, when, when Matt was fill- here filling in for you, he decided to try to mix it up by you know, randomizing the order of the lightning round, and then oh! you know, it's mostly yeah. awful because you know then he forgot one. <laughs> Last time around, uh, which is pretty hilarious, but uh, it did keep us on our toes because we were not sure where we were going next because you just pick randomly. The last thing you need is more challenge. I know it's I, the only reason I'm the host of Lightning Round is because there's no way I would have anything to say about anything ever. <laughs> well, it's also a disparaging thing. We don't want to disparage anybody by making fun of their announcements. So mm-hmm. it's true. I got three. I've got three non-disparagement contracts with the three main <laughs> vendors of our of our discussions. <laughs> yeah. So if you want Peter's real opinion on some technology, you just need to get him, um, mm-hmm. you know, a beer at Reinvent or something. Yeah, yep. beer yep. with no electronic recording devices, and you'll hear yeah. it all. You hear it all. All the all the dirty dirty laundry. Well, things are still coming up uh, very quickly, and I have a special treat for you guys. So, uh, of course, the Amazon Summit, uh, which is competing with Reinforce, August 24th, 26th, is happening. And then Reinforce, August 24th, 25th, in Houston. Uh, and there's five reasons why this blog post author is excited for reInvent. This is from Clark Rogers, uh, who's on the blogging team. And so he gave us five reasons you should be excited. And I'll give those to you now and see if they sway either any of you guys to go to Houston and see this live in person. So first up uh, is Stephen Schmidt's keynote with special guest speaker, AWS CEO, Adam Slipsky. So this is Adam Slipsky's first presentation as CEO. You can see it live and in person in August in Houston. Does that, does that tickle your guys' fancies to go see that? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, only because I assume that I can also watch it via yeah, you'll stre- watch streaming it. video yeah. of some sort. 
<laughs> Correct. Number two is the leadership sessions uh, from some of the top security risk and compliance minds at AWS. The session covers the latest in data protection and privacy, governance, risk and compliance, identity access management, and... <laughs> <laughs> Let me bust out the popcorn for Yeah, but I have like vibrating chairs to keep the, the attendees awake. <laughs> yeah. It better be like shocking. You know, like you, if they detect your head movement, you get a zap. Remember that? Remember, so when we went to the first Reinforce in Boston, they we went to this presentation, they started explaining math proofs to us. And like it took, I, I was like, I needed more coffee before this session because this is, this is <laughs> a rough bit of math we're working through here. Uh, so... To be fair, Oops, that sorry. was the best session I attended. It was the best time. session, but I also <laughs> had the hardest time staying awake in it. Uh, next up is the Security Jam, which, of course, are gamified security exercises based on real-world security problems, and they're offering two gamified learning opportunities that reinforce AWS Security Jam and Capture the Flag. I, I do like those. That I do like those, too. Yeah. Would, like, would sway me. I mean, like if, if that one plus maybe one other one, I might be interested. <laughs> Next up is the Security Learning Hub, uh, which uh, where you can learn at your own pace about the subjects you are interested in from the experts who either built or regularly support your favorite AWS security solutions. I mean, if that's not offered virtually, I'm going to riot. But, you know. <laughs> I mean, like if you really want this, just talk to your TAM and say, hey, I really want to talk to the person mm-hmm. who built this because I don't understand how it works. And the, look at that person on the phone with you. Yeah, You don't have to go to a conference for that as long as you have enterprise support. So, yeah, maybe yeah. enterprise support, <laughs> fly you to Houston, you know, to Houston. It's probably cheaper to fly you to Houston, but, you know, make your choices. Less and then, of course, the, the fifth and final reason is uh, networking. Meet with your peers, customers, AWS partners, and AWS security experts under one roof, and yes, in person, and hopefully not get Delta back. I mean, Delta uh, variant <laughs> while you're there. So, there you go. Those are your five top reasons uh, to go see Reinforce. I don't know if that, any of that swayed you. Uh, it did not for me either. So you know, it's it's so simple. There was a band in my college that figured this out. Like, I don't want to date myself, but what was that like twenty plus years ago? Um, they named their band Free Beer, and oh. everybody showed up to all the bar they played at. <laughs> it's so simple. So simple. Yeah. So simple. Yeah. yeah, until the bar is angry because everyone's thinking they're thinking they're getting a free beer and they're not. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, then Amazon also added a new Amazon Storage Day. Uh, September 2nd will be the 2021 version of AWS Storage Day, where they'll talk to you about all things exciting related to EBS, S3, and all the other storage technologies you may be interested in. And then, of course, in person, live, and improved in November 29th uh, to December 3rd, Amazon reInvent in Las Vegas. Fully still nervous about that one. I'm not sure it's going to happen still. <laughs> booster things shot. Have, I'm hoping for a booster before we thing, get there. Yeah, thing, things have turned taken a turn for the worst on the whole reInvent uh, in Vegas thing, I think, with Delta variant just through the roof. And uh, then, of course, Google Cloud Next is available to you to register now. Uh, virtual conference in October 12th through the 14th, as well as many others. Check the show notes for all the details and all the cool conferences that are coming up, including uh, SneakConf, KubeConf, HashiConf, all the confs are all available to you in the show notes. So do check that out. My prediction is that reInvent will reInvent will require proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test within 48 hours. I is that even hope, enough anymore? I, mean, I, I just hope for the vaccination requirement. I don't the proof of the proof of negative is not really helpful. So yeah, I know, but I think they have to give themselves the out for the people who can't take the vaccination. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm certain my statistics are skewed because pretty much every I know is the type of person who would get vaccinated, but uh, it seems I know a lot of people who are getting COVID right now vaccinated. So I'm definitely concerned about vaccination being the guarantee that we're going to have reinvent. I mean, so, without booster shot, maybe booster. 
the vaccination won't prevent getting it. And even the booster won't prevent you from getting it. It just prevents you from getting to the point you are sick enough to die in a hospital. Yeah, no, it's... 100% on board with vaccinations. And you're also helping... You're also helping all those other people who have not got vaccinated, hopefully. Uh, no, 100% on board with them. I'm just, I don't know if it's enough to warrant reinvent happening. Yeah. I, I, yeah. You know, especially with Vegas, they just you know, went back to masks required indoors. So, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll see. We'll see what happens with Vegas. I, I, you know, four or five weeks ago, I said, yeah, it's going to happen. Now I'm like, yeah. eh, I'm not so sure. So, no, we'll see how, so sure. we'll see how the Delta variant continues to uh, take over in the United States here and across the world. So, all right, well, that's great for another fantastic week here in the cloud. We'll see you next week. See you later. All right. All right. Bye, guys. See you then. Bye. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the cloud pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. Thank you.